So when you talk about the air taxi idea, when you see one of these in person, like the Bell Nexus, you realize that's not that's not that's not what this vision is. <laughs> Definitely not. The aircraft are always bigger than you think. The images I, I think they publicize change the scale of it. It's, it's like a little photographic trick to change the scale so you think it's smaller than it is. They're they're big. They look like toys, but they're not. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we're going to talk about Russia, uh, the way some of the sanctions will affect uh, airlines all over the world, to be quite honest, but specifically Russia. We'll talk about Embraer, Volocopter, some really interesting EVTOL news. We'll also chat through the Boeing uh, documentary on Netflix and my experience with a real life EVTOL at the Smithsonian. So, Alan, let's get going here. Uh, obviously, the Russia-Ukraine situation is crazy. It's very sad. It's you know who knows how that's going to get resolved. But one of the really interesting and concerning uh, things for Russian airlines, besides the fact that you know Aeroflot is not going to be able to fly seemingly anywhere else in the world, is that Boeing and Airbus are going to stop supplying parts as part of these sanctions. And an interesting article by Business Insider explains that they might have to start cannibalizing other planes to keep some of these aircraft flying. Um, talk us through this, Alan. That seems crazy and so in the face of the you know safety culture. But again, it's not like they're going to have any other way to do it if they run out of parts. That's right. And, and there's some news articles just today talking about how uh, Russian... Uh, government is telling the airlines to get their airplanes back into Russia territory. So all the airplanes that are on lease right now, get them back into the country because otherwise uh, you're going to have uh, uh, them repossessed, right? There's a, there's a bunch of aircraft repossessors out there right now trying to get them back, right? So the reason you get all those airplanes back into the country is for spare parts. That's why you do that. Uh, so they're, they're thinking ahead a couple of years. This isn't the first time this has happened to Russia slash Soviet Union, that they've had this parts problem where the U.S. has turned them off and on, and they haven't had ability to you know, refresh airplanes. And, and a similar thing happened, we were talking about this yesterday, a similar thing happened in, in Iran during the, uh, the, the takeover regime change in Iran in 1979, that America stopped shipping parts for the airplanes, fighter planes, regular planes, whatever. And all those airplanes just went to value of zero. They were just garbage. Uh, because he didn't have parts to maintain them. And the U.S. wouldn't sell them. The Allies wouldn't sell them parts. And so they, they had to go through back channels to get to get parts on those airplanes. And Russia is going to go through the same thing. Uh, so there's a really interesting uh, uh, another level of game being played between Russia, Europe, the United States, in terms of airplane, possess- airplane assets that Boeing and Airbus and all the leasing companies that own those things are going to be trying to reclaim as many airplanes as they can as fast as they can uh, so they don't lose upwards of, they're talking about $10 billion is on the table right now in terms of valuation of airplane assets that Russia Airlines uh, hold. So you can see that the chaos this is all bringing. It's not just a shooting war, Dan. It's more of an economic slash shooting war uh, I'm not sure Russia was prefer- prepared for that. Do you, do you get that interpretation that Russia's playing a little bit of catch up maybe on on the economic side? Yeah, I, I don't, obviously I'm, this is unprecedented, right? There hasn't been 
you know, I'm 36 years old. There's been no real legitimate war since I've been alive, obviously. Uh, obviously, there's been all these conflicts and, you know, mostly the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. But there's been nothing like this. So and obviously in the digital, you know, digital age, you know, you could cripple a country with cyber wars. You could cripple a country with sanctions. I mean, I think this has been really fascinating in a sad way. But uh, yeah, just seeing the world's response to essentially shunning Russia and just isolating them from the rest of the world. And yeah, I think there's so many parts of this that people don't think like, obviously, the airline industry, they talked about, you know, Aeroflot being essentially done, isolated, just like with the rest of uh, Russia. But then the idea that you can't get parts for these planes either uh, is just a crazy thing that, oh, you're like, oh, yeah, right. Like the they won't even be able to operate. And then you start that whole industry is going to collapse. It's just it really is astonishing how how far reaching the implications for Putin and the, the Russian regime are. Um, and who even knows how this is going to continue to play out? It's only been, what, two weeks? Right. Right. It's just just getting started, basically. Yesterday that Boeing announced that they were going to stop supplying titanium from Russia, which is a big source of titanium. In fact, like the SR-71, which is built, what, in the 1960s, uh, is made out of titanium. They had to sneak that titanium out of Russia by creating a bunch of fake companies in South America, Africa, to get the titanium to build those aircraft. Because Russia is a, a real resource in titanium. And Boeing announced yesterday that, that they were not going to source titanium out of Russia. Airbus said they were going to continue to source titanium from Russia, at least for the time being. I think that's what will happen. But that Boeing has somehow created an alternate source for titanium to keep their lines running. And Airbus will have to do the same thing, I think. I, I think Russia will turn them off at some point, too. So it's not just like, you know, it's not just Russia being secluded uh, and we turn off parts to, to Russia and Russia is going to start turning off <laughs> things to the United States and Europe. So it's going to work both ways. So both sides have to go figure out alternate paths to keep airplanes in the in the air. And titanium has become a, a bigger and bigger percentage of aircraft structure just because it's so light and strong. And we had access to it that we were using it. And now it's, you know, I think it's going to clearly it's going to raise the price of titanium, <laughs> which will raise the price of airplanes. Uh, yeah. It, but Dan, do you see, can you, can you see this in action now that Boeing was thinking about this probably a while ago? Like, let's look at our supply chain issues and see if there was a conflict somewhere, what that means. Because Boeing seems to be reacting really quickly to this uh, in terms of what to do if, right? What to do if, if Russia invades Ukraine, what do we do? What's the likely outcome? Where do, we, where do we go to get <laughs> these supplies? I think they probably have done the same thing for China on some natural resources. So it, it, it weirdly enough, it becomes not an engineering problem, but a supply chain problem. And all those people sitting behind desks on the phone, on the computer, trying to acquire parts and materials become the lead <laughs> of a company instantaneously. Whether you want to or not, you're, you're the new hot commodity in, in aerospace who can get the supply chain running crazy we live in crazy times what are a few examples of parts that are made of titanium obviously i'm sure there's a ton of them in an airplane but what are a few notable ones well in the floor structure of the 787 this is the parts that boeing's been having problems with i think coming out of italy weren't those titanium parts i thought they were titanium parts in the floor structure around the the wing area uh there it's supposed to be a major structure where if you made it out of steel it'd be too heavy 
so you want to make it out of titanium if you can because it's lighter. Um, I'm sure there's landing gear. There's a bunch of different places where I think you would be using titanium, especially on large aircraft. You don't tend to use it on business jets, not very much. You don't see it a lot because it's kind of expensive. And it, it, the trade-off isn't worth it. But Boeing and Airbus have been implementing it in terms of fuel savings, right? Less weight means less fuel burn, means happier airline customers. That's why you're using it. <laughs> so it's it's not something you can readily swap out. We were, we were discussing that at supper last night. Like, what, could you replace those titanium parts with steel? <laughs> I think the answer is no. <laughs> I'm sure you could. That's a big change, yeah. Because you'd think like aluminum, but aluminum's not nearly as strong as steel or titanium. Yeah, right. Exactly. So that, that that's the problem, right? Uh, that you end up into sort of a steel situation, I think. I'm not a material scientist, but that tends to be the discussions I have heard. Um, you know, but it adds a lot of dead weight <laughs> and weight equals fuel burn and fuel burns not. And with the price of fuel going to be exploding here, uh, it's airplanes efficiency is going to be king. You know, that, that rolls into the discussion about the Airbus A320neo and the Boeing 737 MAX with the reduced in fuel burn engines. Those airplanes, you know, six months ago, everybody was, there's a lot of pundits saying that the 737 MAX was essentially dead and that the NEO was supreme. I don't think that's going to be the case now. When prices of fuel is so high, both of those airplanes are going to be very valuable. And it's going to be a question of who can pump up more airplanes. My bet is on Boeing, not on Airbus. Airbus seems to be at capacity at the moment. Boeing is acting like it's going to try to be ramping up production to the mid-40s, 45, 47, maybe even 50 a month. Uh, and they will have to do that because old 737s are going to get parked. And old Airbus 319, 320s with older engines on them are going to get parked because of the fuel burn issue. So airplane, it's going to be a great time to be in the airplane business a little bit, <laughs> except for this titanium problem and sourcing problem. It could be a good time to be in the airplane business because of those two airlines competing at the sing single aisle, highly efficient marketplace. Uh, it's going to be a, a real battle here in terms of... Um, uh, gaining market share while you can. Because, uh, like I said, the old airplanes get parked every time we have a, a fuel bump up like that that lasts a couple of months. Now, I, who knows if this Ukraine thing ends tomorrow or six months from now or a year from now. But I can tell you if it lasts six months, there will be airplanes parked into the desert because of it. Well, you know, we've talked about how the 747, for example, like that body style has been around for how long was it, Al? I mean, 50 years, 40 years? 1970s. Yeah, I mean, quite a long time. Why can't they take some of the, you talk about the 737s and A319s uh, being parked. Why can't they just upgrade the engines to the newest Pratt & Whitney or Rolls-Royce? I mean, is there really that big of a difference in the actual plane in a 737 MAX, for example, and the 737 so, you know, 600? Or is it really mostly in the engines? Uh, well, as we saw with the 737 MAX, because of the inlet diameter and the, the way that engine functioned, they needed to shove the engine a little closer to the wing and shove it forward, which then caused them to add the MCAS system on Boeing side, they add the MCAS system so the airplane flew correctly, right? So when you add a different engine to it, it changes the flight characteristics because you're tendly, tending to get bigger and bigger inlet diameters, which affects airflow, 
which affects handling. So it's not just swapping out one engine for another, which is what we used to do back in the 70s and 80s all the time. Uh, that's, yeah, it's mostly because I think everything's flown by computer and it's all sort of software driven and the flight characteristics are software driven that changing an engine is not, is really at this point best done by Airbus and Boeing. You don't want to get into that anymore because you could really, uh, I'm not sure the FAA or EASA would even, even let you start a project like that today because of the complexities of it, especially if going through the 737 MAX issue. It, it's a, probably a non-starter today. Let's talk a little bit about the Netflix documentary uh, about the 737. Uh, I know you have some strong feelings about it, and it's definitely, they pull on your heartstrings quite a bit, right? Some of the central characters are, you know, parents or loved ones, husbands, wives of deceased passengers on those two flights. Um, and the narrative is heavily driven in the family's wanting accountability. And uh, there seems to be, you know, Boeing really dodging that accountability and making a lot of poor choices, which they clearly did. Um, but as far as the reasons the plane crashed, pretty much the entire documentary points just at the MCAS, right? And the lack of training. Um, Alan, do you feel like, I mean, do you feel like that was a fair characterization of, because it was a very complex matter. I mean, it is not a super cut and dry. There's a lot of different angles and perspectives. What's your perspective on, on the way that uh, story was reported? The movie itself is heavily weighted into the emotional part of the events, right? And, and rightly so. Right? When, you, when that many people die in two tragic accidents, it, you, you need to pay respect to, to the deceased and to their families and to recognize that the pain and, and the suffering that was, was caused there because of the actions that happened on the airplane. That, that goes with the territory. And I think everybody should accept that and acknowledge their, their, their pain. When I looked at the, the sort of the engineering analysis and when they and the, and the directors started using sort of congressional testimony as the basis for creating an argument. So there's like there's there's multiple arguments going on here, which were conflicting at times uh, readily. I'm surprised that they even let it happen. Um, they had the congressman on from Oregon who uh, was critical of Boeing and in that interview, and I, I never think Congress people know that much about airplanes. I, I would be hard pressed unless they were a pilot in a previous life would know much about airplanes at all, or what actually happens in an airplane factory, or what happens in the on the FAA side. Uh, but the statement was something to the effect by this congressman that it was in, impossible to recover the airplane once that MCAS system tripped. Well, okay, that's interesting, but. The previous pilot and well, at least one of those crashes did just that. Like in one of those crashes, the, the previous flight had the same issue. The pilot turned off the system, landed the airplane safely. Everybody walked off. The pilot didn't even squawk it. When we squawk it is identify it to, the, to maintenance that there was an issue with the airplane. So the next set of pilots walk on the airplane, have the same issue, can't get out of the control loop cycle that it got into when the nose kept pushing down and crashed it. So to say that pilots couldn't got out of that situation and that it was impossible is readily um, rejected on its face because they did. So pilots did get out of that situation. I, I think it kind of boils down to this. 
if you want to hang the CEO of Boeing, that's not a hard thing to go do in a movie. That's easy, right? We, we, we've seen it done. Roger Moore's done it for years. Not Roger Moore. Sorry, Roger Moore's James Bond. <laughs> the movie was called Where's Roger, right? Wasn't the movie called Where's Roger? I know the guy you're talking about. Michael Moore. Michael Moore. Michael Moore. Okay. <laughs> Roger Moore. Maybe the movie is Michael Moore was a director of that movie about GM, which I think it was called Where's Roger? So maybe I merged the two together and got to, to somehow James Bond. Probably, yeah. The thrust here, uh, if you on you know from from attacking the CEO, the CEO had nothing to do with the design of that airplane and probably didn't know much about it on any phase because that's just not their role. Uh, it, it's much deeper down into engineering, and I think the th uh, there's been Peter Lemmy. If you watch Peter Lemmy or follow Peter Lemmy on Twitter, you're going to learn a lot. Go to his website. You can learn a lot about the 737 Max and all the design changes that happened and sort of the flow down and all the all the documents that have come in afterwards about the investigation that system the system was designed as as major and what i mean by that there's like levels of criticality catastrophic if something goes wrong with the system it could be catastrophic hazardous major minor so we put these put these aircraft systems in their performance and the way they, they can counter react or react in bad ways uh in terms of criticality the criticality of that mcas system was designed designed as major, I think, early on. Once you just define the, the criticality of the system, everything design-wise flows off of that. So you wonder why you had one angle of attack sensor? Because it was designed as major. That's why. If it had been, criticality had been pushed to hazardous, it would have had two. If it had been catastrophic, it probably would have had three. Right. So the redundancy goes away because, of the, because the pilot is in the loop. And when, when you, when, um, effects on airplanes are defined. One of the one of those responses is the pilot can respond to the to the problem and react in a positive way to recover the aircraft, and it should be fairly simple. So, in, in if the MCAS system were to react and push the nose down, or react in a bad way, the system was to be powered off, like it was a horizontal trim runaway system. That was the logic of it, and everything that happened after that was a result of that first action. So it cascades from there. Now, did nobody said that in that movie? Weirdly enough, they didn't talk to Peter Lemmy, someone actually who knew something about airplanes. Uh, they talked to people who were working the floor at Boeing in Washington State, in South Carolina, about stuff that happens quality-wise on the floor. No one's making a case that the quality system at Boeing missed that. It wasn't a quality problem at Boeing. It was a design problem at Boeing based upon defining that system as major. That's that's the flow down. And you can where where, where are we having a discussion about the, the level of criticality here? I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen it besides seeing it on Peter's site. And some other changes that happened. Like the one thing that I didn't get to hear anything about in that Netflix movie is Boeing removed a basically a pressure switch on the control column such that when the pilots pull back hard enough, it would disengage the horizontal trim system. So on previous 737s, when the pilots pull back on the stick in reaction to something that was happening on the horizontal stab, it would shut off that, shut off that trim system. Well, they removed that switch. I'm assuming, and this is a complete assumption because Peter hasn't validated that either, because he, he doesn't know. It seems like they removed the switch because they wanted the MCAS system to push the nose down and not the pilot pulling back on the stick to shut it off because they could then 
do something even more dangerous. Their plane could go into a, a high angle of attack and stall. And I think the worst case here is the airplane rolls on its back. Like the airplane just physically flips over on its back and just death spirals into the ground. That's what you're trying to prevent with MCAS, I think. And, and so they kept the pilot from doing that because pulling back would have been the wrong response there. So they, my guess is they eliminated that switch because they didn't want the pilot to pull back there, even though there hasn't been any documentation to discuss that. So if you're really talking about, if you really want to do a, a thorough investigation of what happened at Boeing, someone's going to need to sit down go through all the information that has been presented in congressional hearings and all the FAA NTSB research that happened afterwards and look at it and say, okay, here's the chain of events. And I think internally to the FAA that's going on. I think internally to Boeing that's going on. I think even outside Boeing, people are looking at that and trying to determine where problems should have been caught. Uh, But it wasn't. And Netflix didn't say anything about it. In fact, during that, one of the one of the issues about that AOA sensor on one of those flights is that it was it was repaired in a place in Florida that had no authorization to repair those th- parts at all. They didn't have approval to repair those parts, and they were repairing those parts, and they made a mistake on the repair clearly, and the AOA never worked. And then the mechanics who installed it didn't even check it when it got onto the airplane. They just installed this thing. So it's it's not one event, right? Clearly, it's not one event for an accident. It's a series of events, and but. Why, why can't we get to the heart of this thing two years after? Doesn't, doesn't that bother you a little bit? Or three, is it three years now? Is it three years after? We still haven't gotten to, someone hasn't produced something of a video, YouTube, Netflix special somewhere that says, this is why, this is the chain of events that happened. Nova used to do that on PBS. And I thought for the longest time they're, they were interesting. And they've seemed to veer off the the golden path. But, and wouldn't you like to hear what really influenced that crash? What, that, what decisions were made and why they weren't caught early on? Yeah, it seems like there was a, a big confluence of factors and the AOA sensor was something that I was curious how they would address on there because, and they did for a moment, they said, you know, there, why was there only one angle of attack sensor? But you're saying that it's, it's because the system wasn't wasn't high enough on the criticality. So if it was, you say, hazardous or, or catastrophic, then it would have had it would have had multiple, right? And that would have alleviated that problem. So it wasn't just the fact that they were the one that was installed was also, like you said, repaired incorrectly. And it, weren't they installed backwards? It's not. They were installed incorrectly, and they should have been checked when they were installed. They weren't clearly. That didn't happen either. So uh, from a safety standpoint. We're not really any farther than we were. And here's, here's another interesting piece I always I followed was, and they talked about this in the, in the Netflix movie, that the pilot needed to respond to the action within three seconds because if the action went to 10 seconds, it would have been catastrophic. Okay. The cockpit is full of those things. And the reason the cockpit is full of three-second response times is because you have to put some limit on how fast the pilot should respond to regular problems and horizontal trim runaway would be, I think a problem that you should be able to address as a pilot. That's me engineer, not pilot engineer talking. So that three second criteria is derived out of guidance material. 
And I think it was about a year ago that the ICAO put out a big discussion about where that time criteria came from, that they needed to respond in three seconds. So you actually saw in safety assessments that three-second rule being used. Well, if this happens, the pilot can react in three seconds, okay, because if it got to 10, it'd be a problem, but the pilot's going to react in three, so therefore it can be major. You see the logic here? You have to put some criteria on pilot performance. Right. You can't just assume the pilot knows nothing. You have to assume the pilot knows something about the airplane, right? So where, where is that line? And that gives good context because in the movie, that's one of the parts later on that's kind of dramatic where they're like, if, you, if the pilot doesn't react in 10 seconds, this plane goes down. And you think, oh, my God, any air, you know, what a crazy thing that any plane could crash if the pilot doesn't make a decision in 10 seconds. But like you said, if you really sort of think about it, I mean, are you they you're flying an airplane. Like you can't wait 30 seconds to make any decision and expect the plane to be fine. Same with a car. Like, I mean, if, you know, if a little, a child runs out in the street, you have one second to decide to slam on the brakes or not, right. To not hit someone in the street who runs out unexpectedly. There's lots of things like that. And same thing with a train. I mean, when you really probably start to lump them, put them in a list, all the decisions that could crash a car or a train or a plane, a ton of them probably fall into the immediate or a couple seconds, you know, there's not a lot of things that you could do in a car on the highway that if you, oh, you know, you have three seconds, like if you start to wander off the road, like you take your hands off the steering wheel and you just drive. If you don't put your hands back on the wheel and correct the car in probably three seconds, you're probably off the road and you're about to crash, right? Or you're already crashed. There's a lot of things like that. that so they make that seem like this crazy standard in the movie when it, it, it probably isn't, you know, 10 seconds seems like a pretty long time where you can like have a coffee, put your coffee down and then push the couple of buttons you need to push. And then that's still 10 seconds. So obviously it's hard because that movie there's, it's such an emotional thing and it's so terrible to like lose your daughter, husband, wife, grand, you know, grandfather, anyone in those. And so they really pull on your heartstrings and it's a terrible thing. And obviously there's a lot of decisions that could have been made to alleviate that suffering. But at the same time, it's really hard as a, you know, a layman person like myself to know, what's normal in a cockpit is 10 seconds a normal response time is three seconds like that seems really short but if you're a well-trained pilot three seconds is probably pretty easy to act within right just like again on the highway three seconds to slam on the brakes seems like a reasonable time frame right 10 seconds is plenty of time right and remember to it between the flights Dan. remember that after the first accident happened boeing put out that notice about the mcas system and what it would do and how to respond to it and yet there was a second accident. Now, why, if the pilots had read that briefing, I'm not sure the pilots actually saw that briefing. I think there's a point of contention at the moment. If the pilots had saw that briefing, it said, hey, this MCAT, this, we have this MCAS system. It's going to push the nose down in these, in these unusual attitude situations. Or if it acts erroneously, it's going to start pushing the nose down. Here's what you do. Turn the system off. Turn the autopilot off and fly the airplane. Right? Again, Boeing, this is the Airbus-Boeing difference in theory. Boeing relies on pilots. Airbus relies on computers. That's the general consensus, right? That's not necessarily, there's a lot of gray in the middle of that, but that's, that's, the, that's the generalization. So when Boeing put that notice out, you would assume as a average consumer that, oh, pilots read this and pilots are aware of the situation. They would know how to correct it. Well, obviously they didn't because it happened a second time. So it isn't like the pilots in the second crash didn't have or should have had some warning about it. The question is whether they should have, you know, shut down all the airplanes across the world or not. That 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 debate will never end. 
um, I, I guess you got to give some credit to President Trump at the time because I think it was President Trump at the top who just said, we're going to shut down 737s, period. Because I think the NTSB 7 FAA wasn't about to do that. Um, so you got to wonder if that, if that actually has a positive net result on Boeing just because the, the president actually shut them down and told them to reboot, uh, whether that's not going to have a long-term positive impact, impact on the performance of Boeing. It probably will. Um, so you, you see how, uh, I always call it the fog of war. When all these things are early and congressional hearings are always way too early and you're still in this fog of war and no one has all the information and you're relying upon non-experts, i.e. Congress people, to prov- and their lawyer staffs to, to go through an aircraft system, understand what's going on inside the FAA and what's going inside these engineers' heads um, at Boeing. You just, I, I just think there's zero chance of that being very uh, thorough. It's going to play out as the politicians want it to play out, and I think that's a problem because does it move the system safety aspects forward? Maybe. I think it's a big maybe right now. We're going to find out. The, the, the part, you know, of, of all the things that come out of this, uh, one of the things that I really love is this better interface between engineering, DER type people, engineering representatives, and their connection to the FAA. If we can make that tighter, I am a thousand percent for that because I think with better lines of communication between the FAA as being an outside expert and the engineers that are probably too close to it, too focused on it not thinking maybe big picture at times. Uh, you need both perspectives. You need the sort of micro detail people, which you have inside Boeing, and you need the outside people, which are the FAA, saying, what if the pilot doesn't respond in three seconds, guys? What, what, what's the deal? You need both of those together to think to make a better safety situation. So I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. And I, but I don't think this Netflix film moves safety forward, unfortunately. Volocopter has raised an additional $170 million uh, in a Series E funding round that brings their total fundraising up to $579 million to date. And of course, one of the good things uh, Volocopter, I think, has done, and Joby is starting to, I think, catch up, is they've really made their aircraft public, right? They're parking it in public places, come see it. You know, if they're flying it, they're taking video. Like, they're really pushing, look at what we're doing, look at this aircraft, um, come and see it. Uh, and speaking of which, I obviously I live in Washington, D.C. I went to the Smithsonian recently, their futures exhibit at the castle, which is a really cool old museum. Still very little. I mean, the castle's huge, but uh, only a small amount of it has been, I guess, uh, renovated to use for uh, when you walk in like the main museum area is relatively small, given the entire just gigantic footprint of this building. So you, you hope one day that they're going to fill out all like the attic and like the rafters, like there's multiple floors and it's a really cool space. But one of the interesting things, they have a Bell Nexus EVTOL there on display. So you can walk right up to it. You can't touch it, obviously. But um, Alan, it was a very impressive machine. I was very, very impressed. Um, and I think it brings more credence to what Volcopter is doing, which is you want people to see these things because they don't inspire, obviously you don't get to walk up to aircraft that often of any type because you're not, you know, on the tarmac, but this was something that was a really impressive, it's why it's in this future, this futures uh, exhibit, but it looked for, it looked futuristic. It was, it's obviously black. It's like beautifully engineered. It's got these huge ducted fans, but it also brings the scale into perspective. Cause when you're reading about these, 
you know, you're talking about two passengers, four passengers. You just sort of lose sense of the scale as you're just reading articles and seeing them on YouTube videos. But in person, the the Nexus, it looked like it holds six people in their prototype. And it's big. I mean, it's big, right? It's it's not a 737 or 747, 787, but it's it's a it's a big thing. And so when you talk about the air taxi idea, you know, you and I, you watched the original Blade Runner recently. We were chatting about it. I watched the... Uh, the new Blade Runner 2049 again recently. Uh, I really enjoy that 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 movie. You know, they have air taxis now, right? Main characters shooting around They're in both of those movies. And they're thin. They're car-shaped. You know, they can just meander nimble, nimbly around anything. When you see one of these in person, like the Bell Nexus, you realize that's not... That's not that's not what this vision is. <laughs> Definitely not. The aircraft are always bigger than you think. The images, I, I think they publicize change the scale of it it's just like a little photographic trick to change the scale so you think it's smaller than it is they're, they're big they look like toys but they're not definitely not toys i was standing next to a robinson r44 so for you aviation addicts i was at the san diego air museum this past week and the robinson r44 is small i mean it's it's a decent size aircraft but it's it's not a it's not huge, right? And, and it's everything's narrow inside of it. And but it's it's I think it's the most popular uh, helicopter built today. I think Robinson is. Uh, but all these eVTOLs are massively bigger than that R44. And until you get a sense of scale on it, you don't really realize that you, you're not landing this Joby Bolocopter Lilium aircraft in your front driveway. That's not a thing. Or some of these visions for. You know, like the tongue that slides out of your 41st story penthouse apartment. You, you know, you land on like, and then that's not realistic either. I mean, again, this Bell Nexus is a beautiful craft that you'd love to own, but you're not landing it on, you know, a little tongue that sticks out from your apartment in a high rise in Manhattan, nor are you going to be wanting to fly it through narrow streets or any of this kind of stuff? Like, it's just, it's not tiny. I don't know what the exact dimensions are, but. And then you're obviously going to need a, a margin of safety, you know, because you don't want to bump into anything. Obviously, that's huge, the, the safety of it. And you just start to realize that the vision of the flying car, the Blade Runner, any of that, the futuristic stuff, that just isn't isn't reality. No, no, because it takes a lot of horsepower to, to lift people off the ground, and especially battery packs off the ground. You need a lot of thrust to do it. So that's why you have the multiple propellers and all the motors and all the, all the things to lift you up. And I, I really wonder as we go through this process, if uh, Kitty Hawk and whisk aren't onto something here with the are which are smaller vehicles and Volocopter too, for that matter, a little bit that they're onto something where the, the aircraft are smaller. They haul fewer people. They're sort of more of a personal aircraft than it is a taxi thing because of the size issue uh, and the complexity of it that, you wonder if if you're putting down your you're hedging your bets right now and you're kind of putting markers as to where you think aircraft are going to be there are certain aircraft companies in, in these electric marketplace which are putting down markers on smaller and simpler like buy buy aerospace is doing that right now with their two-seat trainer and their four-seat aircraft and now their eight-seat sort of twin don't call it turboprop ish airplane um I don't know if runways, I think, Dan, what you're getting to is, is you're not saying runways are going to go away. And I, I think runways are here to stay. 
that you're right, having the tongue off your 54th floor apartment in New York City is not going to be the thing, right? I think you're still going to be uh, more energy and efficient, more energy efficient to use a runway and then have the vertical takeoff and landing just because the size of the aircraft gets so darn big that you can't really put it in places you like to put it, right? So where do you make the trade-off, right? Um, that's a great question. And of course, the the heliport, the vertiports on top of parking garages and some some buildings, that makes sense, right? That's There's space there. Um, but the, the personal aspect of it definitely makes less sense. And my big thing is that Again, this was like something that inspires awe, and I think more companies should be doing this. Obviously, like Bell had some agreement, obviously with Smithsonian, because um, obviously a museum. But man, I just feel like CEOs of these companies should churn out a couple of prototypes that, even if they're not functioning, just get them out there in the public eye more. Because it really, you know, like, wow, I I would love to fly on that. Like that thing looks just beautifully engineered. It looks powerful. It looks cool. It looks like the future. Right. And I think that was the first one I've been able to come across. I don't know anywhere else in the U S where you can come across one. I'm not sure that there is one. Right. And I think that's something Volocopter's done really well is that, like I said, come look at our thing. It's in this town square in Italy or wherever they are, you know, like here it is, come look at it. I think that's a powerful thing for people to say, this is going to be the future. Even if you know that this isn't a you know, the final prototype or, or even a functioning prototype, but just getting them out there, I feel like is really important for public adoption where, you know, Joby is, is starting to do more of that. I think it's great, but plant one in the middle of, you know, park it outside the Coliseum in the summer when there's a football game. So people can just look at it as they're walking into the stadium. I think it'd be great PR. That's a really cool idea. Actually, someone should pick that up and use that uh, for definitely. And I, I think that so two things happened in the EV tow market, which are fascinating. Uh, Volocopter getting to a half billion dollars in income, right? So that's just sort of my criteria of where you, you need to be to actually get to a production aircraft. You have to have a half billion dollars in the bank. They did that. Lilium, Lilium's going through a little bit of a redesign phase where it seems like they brought some people in to, to help simplify the airplane down and, and simplify the systems down, make, make it a little more efficient. That appears to be happening, and they're going to be pushing for like a 2024 certification date, which seems really too too soon for that one. But again, it, the valuation, I was looking at the SPACs, like the Lilium SPAC. Um, when the Lilium SPAC happened about a year ago, they were the valuation for that SPAC was about $3 billion. I just checked it its market cap today and it was under a, a billion dollars like 980 million dollars just just under a billion dollars um again those magic numbers of that half a billion dollars you're going to need to go go make these things so it, i think part of it you're dan you're absolutely right part of this is pr part of it is engineering part of it is finance <laughs> unless you have all three working you will not have a viable aircraft product and this is where a company like Bell, that's been in helicopters forever, has an advantage because they get the marketing part of this. This is why they're at the Smithsonian. They, they understand that piece of it. They also understand the financing of it. They also understand the engineering of it. So, you know, a company like Bell is hedging their bets right now because they're not sure where this marketplace is going. But at least you feel like somebody's listening. 
right? And if they if they got an aircraft at the Smithsonian, they're listening to the marketing part of this. There has to be consumer acceptance of it and understanding how big it is and what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like. And if you get, I, I, if I'm Bell right now, I'm watching people's faces as they get close to this thing. I mean, I, I would pay to do that. I put a you know a marketing kid down there to go watch that happen and fill out little survey forms. Like, what do you think? Does this seem like something you could you would use in the future, right? I, I would do that. I, w- I would want to know what that marketplace is telling me because only in that case can you know, is it a viable product or not? And I, I, I always felt like when Bell did the Smithsonian piece that that's what they were going for. See what the public's feedback is on it. What is the acceptance? If your neighbor bought one of these aircraft, would you want it landing in your on their front driveway? <laughs> yes or no, right? Because that's part of it. That's part of it. So a lot of uh, aircraft companies live and die on marketing. And I always think Bell has done it right. Well, and yeah, my, and my last sentiment here is that, you know, this isn't a private jet market where it doesn't matter if any, if any consumer accepts a private jet because they're never going to own one anyway. It's too expensive, right? They're going to live and die in tarmacs. And this, but this is going to be if, if, the Uber vision, if the rideshare vision for this ever comes to fruition, people need to understand and have some, like you said, they need to make acquaintance with these aircraft. And they're beautiful. They're well-engineered. They're cool. So I feel like get them out there, you know, make a cheap prototype that you can climb inside and sit in it for a minute. Because there's there's some other stuff like that that's kind of hands-on at the museum. It's like, I don't think people could just, if they open the doors and said, Hey, go touch the thing. I don't think you could destroy it. You know, have security guards, you're not jumping on it, but, um, make something so that people can start to, to make it a, make it a petting zoo for EV2Ls. I think that'd be, they'd be good long-term. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the struck podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, and leave us a review, share the show with a friend, and we'll see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.